Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Crime and Coffee Couple. My name's Allison. And my name's Mike. Hello, Mike. Hello, hello. How's it going? It's going. It's going pretty good. Yeah, I had a crazy day today, man. Um, we are a weekly true crime podcast, in case you didn't know that, but uh, we come at you every Sunday. And uh, we're just a couple here. Allison delivers most of the stories. I might come at you with a curveball every once in a while. But um, yeah, we're happy to have you here. But yeah, man, the life's been crazy recently. Um, had a yeah. lot of baseball for our son. Um, we just came back from an all-star game this morning. And like it was supposed to start at 930, but then it got pushed to 1030. We got up at like 630 because it's an hour away. We were at the fields for an ungodly amount of time. Yeah, after the shower today, both of us laid down <laughs> in the bed. I was is, looking at the bed. I was like, I can't stand up. Like I do that. That's understandable for me. But for someone like Allison, that's like, whoa. Are you well, okay? It's, it's so damn hot out it just like drains the life out of you yeah we're here in florida so i think it you know readings were like feels like a hundred you know it's 90 outside humid as hell uh just absolutely horrible and we wanted to get started on the redecoration process of mike's office aka our pod laboratory oh my god folks this is all she's talking about yeah it's it's not gonna stop until this is complete i love how a couple of our listeners made fun of me on the spotify thing like you you can ask questions and leave comments on every episode on spotify in case you didn't know that and you're listening on spotify but every episode it says hey any questions let us know and two people both things were like it's cute how mike thinks he's gonna get out of decorating the uh the the office and that's not gonna happen i hope it does i still hope beyond hope that somehow there's something that's gonna be needed at lowe's and i can take an extra long drive no no you're that's you might get out of the painting process one of your friends uh said she would help the it's it's gonna be when i have the time you will be up there helping me with this wallpaper i've never hung wallpaper and we're gonna figure it out together and you know what that's gonna make us even stronger together as a couple i think your friend has hung wallpaper before united we stand together we go we fall I think is what the saying is. So, and I think falling is, gosh, I hate, hate, hate home improvement. Hate it. Hate well, it. then go live in a bachelor pad somewhere that you don't have to do anything. Well, you ever see that meme where there's like guys who just like, you know, it's like, here's a girl's apartment. It's like super cute and like really nice put together. And then here's the guy's apartment. It's like an awesome view of like a city. And all he has in there is a television on the ground and then like a folding chair and like, you know, bag of chips or something. Excuse me for not being a wild animal. Well, I like my dwarf dwellings to be cozy to be decorated to my tastes it's what i like hop on board the express train is going into productivity town (laughs) so 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 hop on board with me that's the lamest thing i've ever heard in my life and you're like so happy about it so happy it's going the productivity town (laughs) (laughs) you even knew that i'm gonna admit that was pretty lame (laughs) oh my gosh you even knew it as soon as you said it i saw your face be like this is so lame it's really stupid but at the same time you're so excited either way you're getting on that train you don't even need a ticket oh my god folks and if you're sick of this go ahead fast forward to five minutes in or whatever but um she even got up at like 12 30 at night and said she was like stressed about this well you were snoring and it woke me up and then my mind of course starts spinning the wheels start going and lots of things were in my mind one of them being our remodel yeah oh she can't get it out of her head and this is this is why i say that you're lucky if you like our podcast because allison will just get stuff done one way or another it's gonna happen i i won't sleep i like blood sweat and tears i'll crawl over glass to make it happen i wrote a review that was like i hope you guys keep on coming out with episodes i'm like oh don't worry episodes are gonna come until allison decides not to and that is no time soon you mean until allison croaks yeah pretty much so she's she's way healthier than i am i'm dying sooner so like if we do this for 10 15 years i'll probably be dead well you'll have somebody 
anybody else. I did have a tough time this week. Our daughter and I are, or my daughter, like, is oh my she? god, That's, yes, uh, our, both our kids are both of ours. Our daughter, as far as I know, I don't know. And me, we're watching Gilmore Girls, and we're kind of late to the party because so many people have watched that show, and it's so cute. It's perfect for us because it's a mother daughter you know, story. But anyway, we were both super hungry. We had had a smoothie for dinner and we were both like, oh, I still want to eat something. So she hops up to make us pizza rolls and like those Totino's ones. Oh god! So she puts it in the air fryer. We're huddled on the couch together side by side, super close because we're sharing from the same bowl. And I'm asking her like, how do you do it where you're not going to get burned? She's like, oh, you have to bite little vent holes out of it. And I thought I was good. I took a big bite and out ooze sauce that was as hot as molten lava, immediately burned the skin off my face. Oh, so gross. So I have like a wound on my lip that looks like a cold sore, I guess. It's definitely, she looks like a leper, cold sore kind of thing, (laughs) and it's gross. You can't look at her. So if you're on video, you can see it. It probably looks like a raisin just sitting on her little little lip. And I'm like, boy, this is bad. I'm a registered and licensed dietitian, and somebody's going to take away my license that I was burned on the face from eating Totino's pizza rolls. Well, it's it's the most dangerous food on the planet. It really is. I mean, it's designed to burn you. Those in hot pockets. Yes, that's exactly what my coworker said. Um, our listeners, do you do you guys anybody outside of the U.S. Do you guys also have like hot pockets and pizza rolls because they're dangerous? I, I can see it being an American thing. But well, because I mean, it's all just contained in this vessel that holds the heat in. Yeah, with horrible steam and oh, all over you. That was rough. I had to like rip the sauce off my face immediately. It was it was ugly. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave a positive review on your podcast listener place of choice. Other than that, what do you say we uh, grab a coffee and get started? I'm drinking a little Starbucks uh, Pike Place with a little bit of milk. I don't usually take milk, but I added some honey and milk and uh, I'm feeling like a little treat. You should treat yourself. You deserve it. Thank you. All right. So we're going to get started. So this is a listener suggestion from Alyssa Marie. And this is a story of the murders of John Chocolos and Linda Carmen. And sadly, they are father and daughter. Mm. So on the morning of December 20th, 2013, Elaine Choclos pulled into the driveway of her father's home. This was 87-year-old John Choclos, and he was staying at 52 Overlook Drive in Windsor, Connecticut. It was 8.23 a.m. The family had been grieving the loss of John's high school sweetheart and wife of 59 years, and this was also Elaine's mom. This was 84-year-old Rita Choclos, who lost her battle with cancer on November 21st, just about a month previously. It was a week before um, Thanksgiving that she passed away. Oh, that's sad. And obviously, anytime you're losing a family member, it's just traumatic and terrible. But I think at the holidays, it makes it that much more difficult. So the family was grieving. It was a very sad time for them. So... Anyway, it was um, John and Elaine. They were had been married since 1954. They settled in Windsor, and this is where they basically raised their four daughters, Elaine, Linda, Charlene, and Valerie. And in 1994, the couple built a home in West Chesterfield, New Hampshire. They began splitting their time between the two locations, between there and Windsor. And just to give you a little background, John was a veteran of the U.S. Army. He served as a paratrooper in the Philippines during World War II. He participated in many high-risk missions. Those paratroopers, I just watched uh, Band of Brothers mm-hmm. on HBO, so that's that's very um, you know recent for me. Band of Brothers, great show, but I mean, they, they are some of the, the most bravest of the brave because they have to fly over and you're dropped down like into enemy territory. They're interviewing one of the guys that was a paratrooper and he's like, we knew any, any way you go, the 
enemy is there. Yeah. You, you know this going in and you're, you got to be brave enough to do that. I can't possibly imagine. So obviously he was very brave. And John graduated with his BS in textile engineering in 1951 from the Bradford Durfee College of Technology. John basically just dedicated his life to his family. He was a true and true family or through and through, I should say, family man. He lived by the motto, without family, you've got nothing. Family is everything. John was a self-made man. He worked in real estate developments. He worked full time even at age 87. You know, I, I think that's more like normalized than, you know, we think like, what, what are you going to do when you retire? You know, travel and stuff. That's yeah, uh, I, I think I'm going to do the same. I would like to not be a slave to a job that I have to get up at this time and work until this time. Yeah. If it's something that gives me freedom, fine. For sure. But if I have to like set my alarm for a certain time, then hell no. God bless him. So obviously he loved what he was doing. So John and Rita felt an obligation to give back to the community, to those that were less fortunate. The couple was known for their kindness and generosity. Each and every Christmas, they opened their New Hampshire home for the public, and this was to view their amazing six million light Christmas display. So they began assembling the display as early as August, and they would finish right around Thanksgiving, and they would invite the visitors to drive through their, you know, scenes of decorations, which I saw that were absolutely amazing. I guess from 6 to 9 p.m. you could come through, and like buses of nursing home visitors would come through. It was pretty cool. It's got to be so cool seeing those people's faces i'm always so thankful for those people that put up those things i could never do it no i mean that's dedication so their west chesterfield home had one of the most impressive decorations in the state they requested anyone that was coming to you know see their lights if they could provide a monetary donation or non-perishable food to a local charity called jones food pantry the event brought in over a thousand bags of food and thousands of dollars that helped carry this charity over for months the couple also generously donated to many charitable organizations. They were just a very giving bunch. And I think somebody that's made a lot of money and they want to give back to those who haven't been so fortunate. I mean, that's really something. Well, you can always make more money, but it's like, what else am I going to do here? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy. I'm comfortable. And we're going to give back. That's yeah, fantastic. I love that. Sounds like a great family. So John worked as a nursing home and assisted living develop developer in the Pioneer Valley area of Massachusetts, as well as Connecticut. And in December of 2013, when the story is basically taking place, he was in the uh, works of a, building another facility in Northampton. The facilities were named after his family members, having names such as Zoe Life Retirement Community, Linda Manor, Charlene Manor, and Elaine Manor. John was also a co-developer of a 42-unit luxury condo development in North Hampton. Hampton, excuse me. So he was a very busy guy, always on the go and in, in thinking of his next venture. So John's business had been incredibly successful. He was said to have made tens of millions of dollars, and he and Rita built their home that was over 15,000 square feet on 88 acres of land in West Chesterfield, New Hampshire. This was the property they would display the lights on. So as part of his estate planning, John established various trusts, including the Chocolos Family Dynasty Trust, which they also just simply refer to as Dynasty Trust. And this was designed to distribute his assets to his four daughters. It was valued at about $42 million. So the executor of John's estates was, or estate was da- his daughter Valerie, and certain additional assets in John's name would pass from his estate into the Dynasty Trust after his death. So he was getting his affairs in order, as you need to, especially when you have this kind of money. You want to make sure it's going into the right hands. Mm -hmm. 
So the John, uh, the house that John was currently staying at, the one that his daughter was pulling into on the morning of the story at 52 Overlook Drive, it often served as an office for John. It was a modest-sized house compared to the one that he used as his primary residence, rather than it being, what did I say, 15,000 square feet? This yeah. one was about 2,000. And, you know, before Rita became ill, they used this the larger property in West Chesterfield as a place to gather their family together. Because, again, keep in mind, John really thought that the family was the center of his life. So he it, it served them well to have a big property because it, w- it allowed them to have their extended family there. Hey, sure. Anytime any family can get a 15,000 square foot house, for mm-hmm. sure, and have the flexibility to have a smaller house. Absolutely. So despite being almost 90 years old, John still had a passion for work. But after his wife passed away, John's daughters encouraged him to stay in nearby Connecticut. So he'd been spending more time at this house on 52 Overlook Drive. Again, you know, he was closer to the girls. He it was smaller in size. They could keep a closer eye on him. And yes, he had a passion for his work, but he was pushing 90 years old. Yeah. At 87, you got to watch out for falls and stuff like that. Exactly. So we're back to the morning of December 20th. And Elaine was stopping by her dad's house to check on him. But to her shock and horror, she ended up finding her father. He was shot to death in his bed. Windsor police were the first to arrive, and the department called the Connecticut State Police Major Crime Squad to assist. Detectives began working to piece together events in the weeks leading up to John's death. There was no sign of forced entry. Nothing was stolen from the property. So, you know. Inside job. Exactly. Like somebody that's part of the family. Yeah. What were they going for? You're looking for all this money and who's going to have access to it? Who needs it the most? Right. So police began speaking with the family to develop a list of anyone that had motive or reason to harm John. A state medical examiner determined that he had died from a gunshot wound to the head and chest. Some of the sources I read said the back. But regardless, he had been shot three times. The case was obviously ruled a homicide. There was no murder weapon found at the scene of the crime. And from my understanding, it was never recovered. So John's daughter, Linda Carmen, she was initially considered a suspect because she allegedly assaulted her father in 2011 during an argument over her own son's care. This is Nathan Carmen. Nathan had Asperger's syndrome, and for whatever reason, they got into an argument. It turned physical. So the case was never prosecuted. It was eventually dismissed. Linda basically claimed self-defense. Linda was questioned about her father's murder, but she was ultimately cleared from the case. So the case remained unsolved for the next three years until the family faced yet another tragedy. But, you know, we'll we'll go on to explain what happened. So before John's murder, his grandson, Nathan Carmen, this is the one they were arguing over, who has Asperger's syndrome, he began spending more and more time with his grandfather. He was attending business meetings with him. He also began asking a lot of detailed questions about or to John's trust attorney, I should say, and his financial advisor about his own financial interests in his grandfather's assets and the operation of the trusts. Basically, very curious about how the money was being broken down and given to whom. And how old is Nathan again? Nathan, at this time, was a teenager, okay. basically. So that's it's pretty interesting for a kid that young. Mm-hmm. So by 2013, John had set up two bank accounts that Nathan would have control of upon his death. 
One contained about 150000 This was to be used as a college fund. The other contained about 400000 and listed both Nathan and his mother, Linda Carmen, uh, as the beneficiaries. So throughout 2012 to 2013, John was able to convince Linda to designate Nathan as a beneficiary of her trust from the Dynasty Trust. And that was worth a lot of money because, of course, he's divvying up at least $42 million. Yeah, that's a lot of uh, power for a kid. Mm -hmm, It is. So John was also paying for Nathan's personal expenses during this time. He bought him a truck. He paid for his apartment. In 2012, Nathan graduated from high school, so he was probably about 18 years old at that point. He moved um, on to community college after his high school graduation. However, he basically failed to complete all of his classes and basically dropped out as of 2013. Hmm. 54-year-old Linda was trying to maintain a relationship with her 22-year-old son, Nathan, So she was making efforts, and the way that they found that they connected together was through fishing, because Nathan loved to fish. So Nathan, in 2015, had purchased a 31-foot boat that he named Chicken Pox. Any particular reason for Chicken Pox? No, I don't think so. They didn't say. It's a funny name. I get it. Okay. So he insured this boat through Boat Owners Association of the United States, which is also called Boat U.S., so it was approximately 11.13 p.m. on Saturday, September 17, 2016. Linda and Nathan Carmen set out from the Ram Point Marina in South Kingstown, Rhode Island, on the chicken pox. So while planning the trip, Nathan had told his mom that they would be fishing in the immediate vicinity of Block Island, Rhode Island. <laughs> Why am I? That sounds weird to me. Block Island, Rhode Island. I mean, it's a block island. The island's name is Block. Block Island, Rhode Island. So, I mean, Rhode Island's a state. That's all right. <laughs> they had planned to set out that night and then come back just the next day. It was going to be a quick trip. So they were leaving on Saturday night. They were coming back Sunday, September 18th at about noon. So when the chicken pox didn't return to the marina as scheduled the next day, the Coast Guard began an extensive search and rescue mission. They were exhausting all their efforts to search for the chicken pox. You know, they were they were pretty worried because it wasn't a very big boat. Yeah. And uh, I wonder how much money. I mean, obviously. okay, so they had the once John was gone, they had the trust money, which was 40 million dollars. And that's probably why how how they're able to afford a boat because boats. I mean, yeah, I mean, guess what are they? You know, 50 grand, 100 grand. Yeah, it wasn't you know an insane boat or anything like that it looked pretty modest a fishing boat but you know they didn't return when they said they were going to so the coast guard stepped in they basically conducted a search that was larger than the state of georgia they were looking anywhere from south of block island rhode island to the canyons off new york the search went on until nathan was found on september 25th by a commercial chinese freight ship that was called the orient lucky So this was eight days after they had set out. They found Nathan floating in an inflatable raft that contained food and water. He was wearing a life vest, but the problem was he was clearly alone in the boat. Yeah. So he had been in the raft for seven days at that point. He was 100 nautical miles from the south of Martha's Vineyard. So the question was, where was Linda? Uh, Don't have a good feeling about this. (sighs) So Nathan spoke to the Coast Guard Command Center in Boston via telephone while on the freighter. He said that when his boat began to sink, it went down very quickly. He said he looked for his mom. He could not see her. So he grabbed some food and water. He jumped into the life raft and he asked the Coast Guard if they had found Linda yet, but they hadn't. The Coast Guard hadn't received a distress call when the boat began to sink. 
and the Coast Guard spokesperson said that it wasn't clear if the boat was equipped with a radio, but recreational boaters are always, always urged to carry a radio with a waterproof case in case of an emergency. Sure, good idea. Because obviously, when there's an emergency and there's a case where water's coming on, you, you need it to be contained in a waterproof case. It needs to be available. So the crew of the Orient Lucky described Nathan as very sad at the time that he was pulled from the raft. When they reached dry land, Nathan spoke to the media and he was asking the public for continued prayers for his mom. Empathy was felt for Nathan, knowing that he'd lost his mom and the fact that the public public speaking for him was was it was challenging because he did have Asperger's. It wasn't easy for him to stand in front of a camera and speak. That was my next question. Like what level of autism are we talking about here? So uh, Asperger's is highly functioning. Very much so. Very, very smart kid. You know, it was just maybe sometimes he lacked the social cues that, you know, would be expected for somebody of his age. And obviously you're going to get into what he saw happen to his mother. Yes. Okay. So at that point, the Coast Guard made the decision to end the search for Linda since too much time had passed, which they considered beyond a survivability window. Police were aware of Nathan from an incident from 2011 when he was 17 years old and living with his mother in Connecticut. Apparently, his horse had died. He got very much upset and and left the house. They could not find him. So police stepped in. They did an extensive search, and Nathan was found in Sussex County, Virginia. He had taken a bus there. He had also bought a scooter, and he was planning on traveling to Florida. Hmm. So they were aware of of this kid. Yeah. So there was also another report of a time when he was in high school. There was a charge that basically said that he was holding a student hostage, waving a knife at the students. Okay, so there's a few things going on Mm -hmm. here. You mentioned something about an interaction, you know, with uh, his, what, John, too, I think, at some point? Um, No, that was actually his mom. Oh, so that was... Yes. Okay. His mom, Linda, in 2011, had gotten into an altercation with her father in the discussion of Nathan and Nathan's care. Okay. So he... You know, Nathan was growing up in Connecticut. At this point in time, he was living in Vernon, Vermont in the recent years. So in October of 2016, this is about a month after his mom had gone missing, Nathan presented an insurance claim to Boat U.S. for the loss of his boat chickenpox. This claim was worth about $85,000. In January of 2017, his claim was denied. He filed a second claim with another insurance company, which was also denied. How's it denied? So I'll tell you how. So both companies denied the claim, indicating that the sinking of the boat was not accidental and there was actually potential for criminal wrongdoing. Ah, so, so the police are notified of this, I would guess. Yes. Okay. Yes. So in July, this is all going on. In July of 2017, Nathan's aunt Valerie, who was the executor of John's estate, filed an action in New Hampshire probate court that Nathan killed both John and Linda, and she was seeking action to prevent her nephew from the inheritance. So he was set to inherit inherit about seven million from his grandfather's death alone, and then another ten from his mom's death. Oh, wow. Because again, John's estate was worth about forty two million, and he was breaking it up between his four daughters. Mm-hmm. So he was set to inherit a lot of money, close to twenty million dollars. Okay, that math doesn't really add up, but that's okay. 
Well, seven from his um, grandfather because his, his grandfather was going to bring give him, a bigger, give him some too. Yeah, okay. and then Linda's po- portion. There was many trusts that John yeah. had. He was a very very wealthy man. Money for everyone. So you know we're talking about about twenty million dollars that Nathan was set to inherit. So on Monday, July 17th, 2017, Linda's three sisters made the agonizing decision to file a lawsuit that accused Nathan of possibly killing both his mother and his grandfather. And that's got to be tough to file that lawsuit. Yeah. Be like, our our nephew is potentially the one that killed our sister and our dad. Yeah, that's that's a brutal like pill to swallow that your own flesh and blood could be capable of killing their own flesh and blood. Yeah. I mean, especially an 87-year-old grandfather that over the course of 2012 and 2013, he had gotten very close to. Yeah. They were spending a lot of time together. I mean, that's brutal. So, you know, it was it was a hard decision to make. So they indicated that, you know, he was likely involved in, in both of their murders. So they indicated that the decision had nothing to do with money and everything to do with justice. They felt that it was what their father and their sister would want for them to do. A judge actually dismissed the case in 2019 because John was not a New Hampshire resident at the time. The case was then refiled in Connecticut but last I read, in May of 2022, the case was still pending. So it was discovered that, with everything that was being investigated, that on November 6, 2013, Nathan was living in a rented apartment in Bloomfield, Connecticut. However, he registered his truck to New Hampshire and obtained a New Hampshire driver's license. He listed his residence as the home that his grandfather owned in West Chesterfield. Then we're moving on to November 11th, about six days later or so. In 2013, he used his new driver's license to purchase a $3,000 rifle. This was a Sig Sauer 716 Patrol uh, th- uh, .308 caliber rifle. He bought this gun at Shooter's Outpost in Hoaxat, New Hampshire. It's theorized that he then went to his grandfather's house on December 20th and shot him twice in the head and once in the back or chest, depending on which source I read, while he was sleeping in bed. So obviously they are like, okay, can you show us this rifle? Of course. And he's like, oh, I don't know where I put it. Mm -hmm. And from what I read, at least one of the three bullets that hit John had come from this caliber, this .308 caliber class. Okay. So when, of course, police go to speak with Nathan, do you own a gun? He never mentioned a rifle. However, police ultimately learned of his existence, and Nathan said he lost it. Ah, weird. It's an inconvenient. Uh, There's nowhere to be found, this $3,000 rifle. I guess convenient for Nathan. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So then it's alleged that after Nathan murdered his grandfather, he tried to cover up the crime by destroying his computer hard drive and the GPS that was in the truck that he drove. Between December 20th, 2013 and January of 2014, Nathan denied any involvement in John's murder. He lied about his whereabouts between 3 a.m. on December 20th, 2013, which was the night that his grandfather would have been killed. How do you know he lied? Uh, Because police, of course, questioned him and his stories were not matching up. He basically didn't have an alibi at that point. I mean, you know, for people listening, I know, you know, that things are pointing to this guy, Nathan, doing it. But I just want to know if there was evidence. So it said that between 3 a.m. December 20th and when he left his apartment in Bluefield in approximately approximately 4 a.m. when he arrived at a location where he had planned to meet his mom for a charter fishing trip. So basically what I'm saying is there were many hours where he was unaccounted for. Mm -hmm. 
So he denied purchasing the rifle in November. Reports indicate that there was a breakdown between police and the DA. The DA believed that they needed more evidence. So basically, Nathan was never arrested for his grandfather's murder, hence the reason why three years had gone by and he was free to go on this fishing excursion with his mom. Sure, they were trying to find everything. Mm -hmm. Um, How can you prove that you didn't buy a gun? I guess they didn't need IDs or background checks or something? Well, he did. I mean, it was proven that he bought it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They found the documentation that he purchased that. (laughs) Is this your signature? Yeah, it looks like your signature. Used, this is the ID that you provided. Yep, he that, used his ID. Yeah. It, that's, it's fact. He right. bought this rifle. Okay. So after his grandfather was murdered, Nathan received approximately $550,000. $150,000 was from his college fund, and $400,000 was from his beneficiary on death account. In 2014, Nathan moved to Vermont. He blew through much of this money. I mean, that's a lot of money. That's more than a half million dollars. Yeah. I mean, if, yeah, you give me a few months, I could blow through a half million dollars. You know, like 30 million is a lot harder, but I mean, you could just buy some crazy stuff and rent, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. So he's blowing through this money between 2014, 2016. Much of these years, he was completely unemployed. No doubt. By the fall of 2016, his funds were basically running out. And at this point, he began to plan his fishing excursion that he and his mom were going to take, which his mom did not survive. I know what I can do. Kill my own mother. Sick. So Nathan's family was so fearful of him after his grandfather's death that they actually got bodyguards. Yeah. Because if John could lay in his bed sleeping at 87 years old and not survive, they didn't know what he was potentially capable of. Well, not to mention you were left millions i would do the same thing right you know, make sure you have security around so they and had poor linda the mom is sorry cut you off but it was you know she's it's still her son so she's trying to have the best of them and try to be like no you did you didn't kill grandpa did you and he's like no mom i don't know you know you want to hope the best out of your son of course and obviously she trusted him she trusted that he didn't do what he had been accused of because the two went out on his boat together right which is so sad because she she trusted him and yeah. it was her own child so, you know, the fact that his aunts and such are hiring bodyguards because they don't trust their nephew, that's really sad. So only hours after Nathan was rescued on September 25th, police in Vermont seized items from his Vernon home after obtaining a search warrant, which was issued for the investigation of his reckless endangerment for allegedly taking his mom on a boat that was in need of repair. He had also taken her to a different location than what was planned. Linda had told her roommate that they were going to be fishing in a new spot about 20 miles off the coast of Rhode Island. This was the area known as Block Island. Before leaving, Linda did send an eerie message to a friend, and she wrote, Call me at 12 noon if you don't hear from me. So she had to obviously know in the back of her mind that there was potential. He was probably acting a little bit, you know, not normal than she's used to and Mm -hmm. looking around and things, you know, and she's probably like, "Uh oh, this might be happening to me. Yeah. Her worst suspicions are coming true. Yep. Poor thing. So investigators couldn't understand how Nathan had time to put on the life vest inflate a huge life raft, grab provisions, because we know that seven days out on the water, he still had food and water, 
but he didn't have time to locate his mom on a 31-foot boat. We're not talking about a massive boat where you can go under and be in a bedroom or something like that. It wasn't like that. It was a very simple fishing boat. They're like, Nathan, you brought enough to make a fire, make your own mac and cheese for a few days, and uh, you know, you have a nice bed with a comforter, but you couldn't save your mom? Right. You know, it's like uh, he didn't have all those things. But, but the point is, he planned it. on his life raft, he still had food and water, and he had been out there for seven days. Yeah, that's like you're planning it. It's like, okay, I'm going to be out here for a long time. I'm going to take enough. Yes, which is disgusting. Yeah. So obviously, during this whole time, Linda's family is beginning to wonder if her disappearance was an accident at all, because we know that Nathan was being looked at in his grandfather's murder. So when Nathan turned in his insurance claim, more information surfaced. Somebody came forward and said that they had seen Nathan at the marina doing repairs to his boat only hours before he left for the fishing trip with his mom obviously people who are going out on an excursion on their boat they're going to tend to their boat but regardless they did see nathan manipulating his boat so an investigation of the boat indicated that it was in need of mechanical repairs and the trim tabs had been removed these help stabilize performance i know nothing about boats so i had to look this up Um, And this left holes that he had tried to seal with an epoxy stick. He had also removed two forward bulkheads. These are the vertical separations on a boat that provide structural reinforcement. They also reduce the extent of flooding in the event of damage because it's like a different compartment. So rather than it filling one space, the water would only come into those spaces. So he had absolutely done manipulations to the boat that put the boat in danger. Nice. Right. So an attorney representing the family said that the modifications that were done to the boat had no rational basis unless your goal was to take the boat out and sink it. Since the removal of the trim tabs are leaving holes behind, obviously that's putting the boat at risk for sinking. Yeah, you don't do it. Anybody that knows boats would know this, it sounds like. <sighs> so Nathan ultimately admitted he said he had removed the trim tabs, but he denied intentionally sabotaging the boat. It was also noted that Nathan's computer had been removed from his home, which authorities believed he purposely did so so that it could not be reviewed while he was away because police obviously got a search warrant. They did seize the items in his home. Mm -hmm. So when Nathan was picked up from the raft, he said that he had done repairs to the boat. It was very much safe. He said that had it not been, he would have never taken his mom out on the water. He said that he was in no way responsible for the boat sinking or for his mom's death, but he did feel responsible that he had put his mom in the situation, bringing her out on the water. He said, if I hadn't asked my mom to go fishing with me that weekend, she would still be alive with me today. Yeah, she would. I mean, that's true. That's a fact. Yep. So Nathan explained that he and his mom were offshore fishing for tuna when he heard an odd noise. He noticed that the boat was taking on water. He said at the time he hadn't realized that they were in danger. Therefore, he did not activate a distress signal. So he did have means to call out a distress signal. It was his opinion that they were completely fine at that point. Mm -hmm. He said that he didn't realize they were sinking until the boat simply sank. (laughs) You know, I was so into my fishing thing that uh, until there was like, you know, water on my kneecaps, I didn't realize. It's like, okay. Right. You have no idea. You hear a a noise on your boat and you're not like checking things out right away. 
He said he indicated that he thought he had time to diagnose the problem and bring them safely back to shore. He said he was carrying a piece of safety equipment. He felt the boat was sinking very rapidly at that point. He was walking on the deck, which was there, and then suddenly it wasn't. That's how quickly it happened. Except you had time to get food and water. Mm -hmm. He was very much prepared in that life raft. So according to Nathan, during this time, his mom was in the cockpit. He was at the front of the boat. So she would have been behind him then. And again, not far. No. This is not a large boat. Okay. So he said it took three to five minutes for Nathan to notice water in the boat, and then it was actually sunk. It was gone. He said when this happened, they were off the coast of New York near Block Canyon, and he was unable to find his mom. And again, this was not the area that they had set out to go on because Linda told her roommate specifically, we're going 20 20 miles off the coast of Rhode Island where they were setting off. Mm -hmm. So Nathan's dad, Clark Carmen, he was recently back in his son's life. He addressed the fact that his son had been investigated, you know, in his grandfather's murder, but had not been charged for his death. Clark insisted that Nathan wasn't involved in John's murder nor his mother's disappearance, which was purely an accident. Careful, Clark. You might be next unless you have no money to get him. Yeah, in that case, you might be safe. They weren't, to, you know, he wasn't with Linda anymore. So he said that Nathan's suspicious behavior could be related to the fact that he had Asperger's rather than actual guilt in regards to comments that people were making about things that he may have been saying during his interviews or if he seemed socially awkward. He was basically reminding the public he has Asperger's. You might find him rubbing you the wrong way. It could be because of that, not because he's guilty. Which is true. Sure, of course. According to a firearm seizure warrant from 2014, Nathan was the last person to see John alive because this was during the investigation before Linda went missing two years before um, when they were trying to figure out if Nathan was guilty of this. So, you know, he was the last person to see his grandfather alive. It was about 8.30 p.m. the night before he was murdered. The two had dinner together. And then that's basically where it gets very muddled on what Nathan was doing. And that there was a lot of missing pieces there. Mm-hmm. Again, like I say, during the investigation, authorities indicated that they had found several inconsistencies in Nathan's whereabouts during the grandfather's murder from 10 p.m., on December 19th up until about 8 a.m. on December 20th, we know that the daughter came to the house about 8.35 a.m. So lots of missing pieces of time that Nathan absolutely had the means. Inconsistencies don't get you in jail. No, of course not, because we're talking in the middle of the night. If he lives by himself at home, you might not have an alibi simply because of the fact that you're alone. Sure. But if your story's changing over and over again, there's a good chance you're up to something, but the police have to find some of that evidence. Right. Exactly. And that's why he had yet to be arrested. So Nathan claims that he had nothing to do with his grandfather's murder as he was the closest person to him. He said he was like a father to me, and I know I was like a son to him. He said that he knows that his grandfather was the biggest victim in his homicide, though he feels that he was the second biggest victim since he lost the most important person in his world. Hmm. He indicated that he had tried his best to work with the police, but it was very, very difficult to deal with. So basically, he's making excuses that, you know, I may have given inconsistencies. This was because I was going through a very trying time. He's putting a good story together. Mm hmm. On Tuesday, May 10th, 2022, Nathan was arrested with an eight-count indictment that said that Nathan shot and killed his grandfather as a part of an effort to defraud insurance companies. However, this indictment didn't charge him with the murder of his grandfather. 
that said he was responsible, but it wasn't charging him with his murder. I'm not sure how that works. Like we say a lot, it's like what they can get him on. Right. So seven of the eight counts of the indictment were related to fraudulent efforts to get his grandfather's money and that he was responsible for murdering his mother. So it was pinning that on him. If convicted of murder, Nathan was facing a life sentence. So um, he was pleading not guilty to fraud and first-degree murder in the death of his mother. A trial was set for October 2nd of this year, 2023, in Rutland, Vermont. Nathan remained in prison since his arrest in May of 2022 because it was determined that he was a flight risk, as well as a danger to the community. He had been seeking release pending his trial, you know, ongoing. He was trying to get out of jail and saying, let me just be under house arrest. He said, I'll give you my passport so that I cannot leave. I will submit to electronic monitoring. I will turn over all my money so I physically can't leave. Basically anything so that he could be out of prison and wait for his trial this October. What's interesting is most times we do these stories that people are deemed not a flight risk. But Mm -hmm. like, I wonder what made him a flight risk. I don't know. I thought I think the family's opinions really weighed sure. heavily on this case. It makes sense. It's a good good choice. Yeah. The motion indicated that he had always shown up to his court cases in the decade that he was facing civil litigation and he was not a danger to others since he had, had been living a quiet life with solid ties to his community. Apparently, he participated in a lot of the town forums. He attended church. It said that he had many local friends. It indicated that he had never tried to contact a witness inappropriately or to influence a witness in any way. And however, this was all denied because he did remain in prison because he was considered to be a danger and a flight risk. So he was in prison. However, this all came to a screeching halt just like 10 days, less than 10 days ago. Really? Yes. Brand new. Okay. So on Thursday, June 15th, 2023, 29-year-old Nathan was found dead in his jail cell at 2.30 in the morning by guards at county at a county jail in Keene, New Hampshire. Wow. He was the sole person in his cell. He did leave a note behind for his lawyers. Good. They weren't releasing what his cause of death was, what he did. It oh. was it was um, indicated that it was not a suspicious death. It will come out eventually. You got to figure strangulation of some sort. One would think. Yeah, that's usually what it is. One of Nathan's lawyers indicated that they had just spoken to him a day earlier. They were coming together on a Zoom call to talk about plans for the upcoming trial. They described Nathan on the Zoom call as upbeat. He was feeling confident. They all believe that when he went to trial, they were going to win. He made a point of saying that Nathan is innocent until proven guilty. So basically, he's an innocent man because he had yet to face trial. So, again, his death wasn't considered suspicious, but a full medical report will be complete within 60 days of his death. On Thursday, June 22nd, 2023, just a few days ago, a funeral was held in Waterbury, Connecticut, in a nearly empty church. (laughs) Who's going to show up to this dickhead's funeral? His attorneys were the ones that paid for his funeral and his burial. Reports did indicate, though, that three family members did come and attend the service. Well, his dad probably, I would guess, and whatever. Yeah, he never faced trial and committed suicide, and that is the end of it. Wow, So no one was ever convicted for john's murder or his daughter linda's if you're the family like how do you feel about that you know i mean it's you can't put yourself possibly no and you know the family was devastated that this all happened that nathan is dead that you know that's their nephew yeah ideally no your your father and and sister are not killed by somebody it's tragic yeah that's incredible nobody wins in this case at all 
Yeah, and it, that he's definitely killed himself. That's the other thing. It's yes. like, you know, so you got to figure strangulation of some sort or he like slit Maybe his wrist. Maybe he slit or, his wrist. Yeah. Um, wow, incredible. Yeah. But now he's not going to be a danger to anybody else. And you can pretty much guarantee he did kill them. Um, I know. mean, to me, if you're committing suicide, especially if the lawyers said he seemed upbeat that they were going to win, Obviously, he didn't believe that they were going to win. Right. He, well, the lawyer could say whatever he wants now because his client's true, dead. Be like, true. yeah, we had a great case. Well, and then, you yeah, know, that's advertising for them. And we do know he left a note for his lawyers what this note contained. We have no idea. If it makes them look bad, then they're not going to come out with it. And mm-hmm. it's for his lawyers. So, they're, you know, they're just looking to make money on the next person. And they're defending somebody who's obviously guilty. So Somebody's got to defend guilty people. Well, it you could know? be the public defender. True. Um, so, that's the person that's supposed to. But for money, they'll, they'll sing a, like a canary. It's kind of crazy, though, because when this case was recommended to me, this was months ago. And Nathan was still alive. Right. And we could have told it and been like, ah, oh, we'll find out during the trial. Yes, but exactly. So all of a sudden, I'm Googling the case to start my research. And I'm like, whoa, yeah. that's crazy. Incredible. Well, yeah. So Nathan was 29 years old. Um, wish I could say that that's too bad. But, um, <sighs> you know, probably better for everybody. Involved. Yeah, it's it's very unfortunate, the whole thing. You yeah. know, the fact that sweet 87 year old John that just wanted to give back and continue to work and do good, got killed as he slept in his own home, likely by his own grandson. And his own mother. You know, Nathan killed his own mother. Mm-hmm. Like and a, we, her body has never been recovered. Uh, so did she simply drown or did he do something to her and then sink the boat? Yeah, he probably he, strangled her or something. He definitely... Or shot her. Right. We don't know because, again, her body wasn't recovered. So um, the fact that he had time to get his life raft together, get it stocked with plenty of food and water... You know, he she was likely dead during that time. And yeah, the kid must have been obsessed with money because Clearly. like to kill your own grandfather was like your your dad. You know, you say he's like your own father. Right. And that's gotta hurt his father too. Be like, yeah, this guy's like his father, I'm his father. Well, from what me. I read, his father was just kind of recently back in his life. Yeah. And uh man, that's that's uh what a piece of shit. Well, I can't wrap my mind around how people do the evil they do for money. Yeah. I know money is important in life. It, it keeps us afloat and gets us the things we want. Makes things a lot easier. Traveling. Yeah. But to kill your own family or anybody. You know, I was thinking of the term, you know, money's the root of all evil. But I was just thinking that I too. Don't, I don't necessarily believe that. Only you if know, you make it. A lot of our stories have nothing to do with money. Right. And there's plenty of evil every single week in our sure. stories. And right. So I, I don't believe that. It does make people crazy. And Nathan just was more obsessed with money than the mm-hmm. own, his own family, which is interesting because he killed his grandfather who said family's first, whereas Nathan decided, no, you know what? Money's first. I'm going to kill you. Yeah, it was basically the opposite of the way that his grandfather lived. Yeah, well, at least he's gone, so he's not going to hurt anybody else. Right. So thank you for telling that story, and remember John and Linda, um, Absolutely. Um, If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more, definitely subscribe to us in whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Hit that plus button, the check mark, I don't know, wherever you are. Uh, We'd appreciate it very much. And if you really, really enjoyed it and you'd like access to over 20 more episodes, you can become a patron. You sure can. Or if you just love us and want to help us out, this little mom and pop podcast we got going on over here in Florida, go ahead and become a patron. It's uh, this little five bucks all right and we want to say welcome to the crime and coffee couple club to eileen and kendra so very fantastic uh names those are beautiful names and uh, if you join the patrons then uh, i'll say the same thing for you next week absolutely beautiful souls yes wonderful inside and out and we thank you all for being here this week we appreciate each and every one of you tuning in and listening and until next time bye